This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel. Here in the studio, we have Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. We also have Josue Michels. Good morning. And Joshua Taylor. Good afternoon. We'll start in America today. The Biden administration's new Inflation Reduction Act does nothing to reduce inflation, as we've talked about on this program. But one thing it will do is massively expand the power of tax collectors. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, Biden signed that Inflation Reduction Act this Tuesday, and it's set to be the biggest expansion of police state power in American history. I mean, we've talked a little bit before about how it's probably the biggest climate change bill in American history as well. But just looking at these statistics, I combed a little bit through these statistics this week, and this approves uh, $80 billion in new funding for the IRS over the next decade. And so for a little perspective right now, the current IRS annual budget is $12.6 billion. So it's basically approved six times what the IRS is currently spending each year to be spent over the next decade. Uh, And also approved 87,000 new hires. And again, for just a little perspective, currently like the the IRS, uh, it's staffing somewhere in the 70,000s. I think it's 76,000 IRS employees. So this is more than doubling it's uh, it's staffing uh, staffing size over the next ten years, and so this isn't just a, a minor tweak that like well some people have been underreporting their income, so we need some new accountants to uh, to keep an eye on that. This is basically saying it's that like the the power the Internal Revenue Service currently has, uh, the Biden administration wants to double that over the next decade. So the IRS has. Uh, twice the staff and almost twice the budget it currently does and uh, uh there's definitely uh, some people getting concerned about this uh, one uh uh one congressman even um representative thomas mace uh released two videos this week that actually showed uh some of the uh these uh, irs uh recruiting uh recruiting practices where they've got people there uh, dressed in armored vest or like Kevlar vest, police vest, uh, with guns, or probably fake guns, pretending to uh, to handcuff this guy behind his back. So, the uh, the the representative there saying said this isn't a, this is a, these aren't tryouts for the FBI or the uh, Border Patrol. It's like these are actually tryouts for the for the IRS, showing that a lot of these new hires are are getting ready to um, arrest people at gunpoint in order to uh, just really crack down on this tax collection, which the Biden administration hopes will um, really increase America's revenue. Uh, they're saying that they believe uh, these, uh, this $80 billion investment they made is going to pay for itself by, uh, uh, by allowing the IRS to collect $200 billion more in taxes. And, uh, and Biden... Um, Biden's been, uh, in his typical fashion, uh, pretty dishonest about the fact that he's like, well, it's like it's mostly going to be on the ultra rich. We're not planning on auditing anyone who makes under four hundred thousand dollars a year. 
Yeah, but the Congressional Budget Office went through it with a fine-tooth comb, and actually uh, one of the organizations they work with, the Joint Committee on Taxation, found that from 78% to 90% of the money raised from underreported income would likely come from those making less than 200000 a year. Uh, in fact, they, they further say that only about 4 to 9% would come from those making four than more than 500000 a year. So despite Biden's promise that they're not <laughs> going to audit anyone making less than 400000 uh Congress is saying that actually the lion's share of the money they're making is going to be coming from those making less than 400000 uh, The IRS, they're, they're pretty savvy over there. Uh, they know that those people who are up in the millionaire uh, bracket uh, have the money to hire some pretty good lawyers to make sure that they— uh, don't have to pay any more taxes than they're required to. Uh, and so they, they oftentimes do go after the small business owners, those who are paying taxes but don't necessarily have uh, the resources to fight an extended uh, legal battle. I, I think uh, this does jump off the page when you look at it in light of, say, the, the weaponization of the FBI, the rise of this police state mentality in the Biden administration. You've written about just how much these uh, alphabet agencies, these federal agencies are arming up, uh, the IRS being one of the, the chief among them, that they're uh, loading up on guns and ammunition. Uh, and the, it is definitely something to be very concerned about when you consider just how much they've demonstrated their willingness to use this kind of power against Americans. Right, because, I mean, you look at um, reports. I mean, the American Transparency Organization's done a, a couple pretty extensive reports on just, like, the number of uh, assault rifles and ammunition and bulletproof vests and even drones and tanks in some cases uh, organizations like the IRS are buying. And it just makes you wonder, well, like, what are they preparing for? I was talking with someone about this the other day, and they're like, well, in this day and age, like I said, if you're... Um, uh, not paying your taxes. I mean, the the IRS has the power to digitally take it from your account. So if they can digitally take it from your account, why do they need these SWAT teams and weapons unless they're preparing for something uh, pretty serious? Uh, and um, uh, this is one thing that uh, the the late Herbert W. Armstrong was uh, pointing to back in the, the 50s is that he was writing about um, the reasons the Roman Empire collapsed and uh, and making parallels with how America's collapsing today. And he, he cited Edward Gibbons. Uh, Edward Gibbons had five reasons the Roman Empire collapsed, which was family breakdown, a major increase in taxes, uh, a major increase in military spending, uh, the decline of religion, and then just the mad craze for pleasure. And you definitely see all five of those in America today, especially this uh, this uh, family breakdown and this rapid uh, increase in taxes. Uh, Mr. Armstrong made the point when he was writing about that that he actually said uh, he was writing this in the 50s where he said just two pres the two presidents who uh, were responsible for the Great Depression, Herbert Hoover and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, actually spent like six times more money running the U.S. government than every previous president had spent combined, mm. uh, just showing this massive expansion of government. And it's expanded quite a bit more since, uh, since Herbert Hoover was around. Uh, right. And so you're seeing this. This is like one of these things that's 
leading to a decline of an empire. And one of these reasons is that, like I said, if the government, uh, Rome, Rome suffered very similar to what America is suffering today, where they, they knew that if the government wants money, there's only three ways to get it. You can borrow it, you can print it, or you can tax it. Um, in America's case, you're, the debt's so high, we've got a $30 trillion debt, that nations are uh, losing their appetite for lending money to America. So they're realizing that at some point, we're not going to be able to borrow it anymore. And you're not going to be able to print it um, unless you want a hyperinflation crisis, like we're already moving towards. And so if uh, the American government's going to keep spending like it's going to be spending uh, at a time when China and other nations aren't lending to it, uh, you're going to have to have like a Roman style rapid increase in taxes. And I, I think the Biden administration must realize that because it's otherwise like, why are you, why are you double, doubling the uh, budget staff and firepower of the IRS unless you're realizing that like you're going to need to be collecting a lot more taxes than you're collecting now in an economic environment than a lot worse than it is now and it's gonna it's gonna have to be something you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna probably have to do at gunpoint in many cases mm. well andrew wrote an article earlier this year america's economy going the way of rome that underscores some of these comparisons that he's making right now we'll link to that in the show notes for the program today we thank you for bringing that story to us andrew is china planning to establish a naval base in sri lanka Evidence grew this week that the answer is yes. For this, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, it was on Tuesday that China's most powerful spy ship reached Sri Lanka, and it dropped anchor at the Hambantota port. That's on Sri Lanka's southern coast, and the ship is scheduled now to remain there for around a week. The ship is called the Yuan Wang 5, and it's among the most advanced tracking vessels that China has. It's uh, mainly for monitoring satellites and also missiles that have already been launched. But it also, you know, is able to uh, monitor surface activities as well. And this ship is under the command of the Chinese military called the People's Liberation Army. So because of that, many countries have been really alarmed by the Sri Lankan's decision to let this ship stay in their port. India is, of course, especially alarmed about this because the Indians really view this area as basically their backyard. It's very close to India's coasts, and they worry that China is spying on them with the ship or even using it to map out you know, some sort of future attack plans. So the Indians have been very vocal this week, just criticizing Sri Lanka's decision here to let this ship in. But that criticism doesn't change anything. The Sri Lankans have let China in, and I think this could mean that we'll be seeing the Chinese with various vessels and warships in Sri Lanka more and more in the months and years ahead. Why would Sri Lanka allow this, knowing that it, it uh, creates this kind of tension in the region? This was all the result of some really myopic and reckless borrowing on Sri Lanka's part. The Sri Lankans have borrowed all kinds of money from China to build infrastructure. China offers quick, easy cash for these kinds of things, especially under its Belt and Road Initiative. And Sri Lanka has just eagerly accepted China's money for years, including the money to buy this specific port where the Chinese are now docked. Sri Lanka borrowed more than a billion dollars from China to build that, and the deal ended up blowing up in uh, Sri Lanka's face. The port was not profitable for the nation. 
and the terms of China's loans ended up being really predatory. So back in 2017, Sri Lanka actually signed control of this port over to the Chinese since they weren't able to repay the loans on time. That was basically the only option they had. So that gave China a controlling stake over this port for a period of 99 years. And so in light of that, you know, that move that happened there, I think it's easy to see why China now has this spy ship docked at the Hamben Tota port. In some ways, this is essentially a Chinese port. So whether India likes it or not, whether Sri Lanka likes it or not, the Chinese are in a strong position to bring whatever ships they want to to uh, this port. And I think we could start seeing far more Chinese military vessels stop there and possibly even basing themselves from there uh, in the future. We've been following this this crushing economic crisis and political crisis that is uh, besieging Sri Lanka, and it's it's in really no no position to uh, um, it has no leverage in working uh, with China. China has all the power, uh, and the fact that it's making this move on Sri Lanka, it's consistent with what we've seen China doing with several other nations as well, and just uh, using leverage such as it has in this case to increase its uh, its control over several important sea gates. This is something that we have talked quite a bit about because of its prophetic significance. This is a, a very important trend in terms of prophecy, as you said there. Um, it, it's actually about two main prophecies. For a number of years, the peoples of Britain and America had control over virtually every important oceanic choke point which is sometimes sometimes called Seagate on the planet. You know, they had all kinds of locations like the Suez Canal, Panama Canal, Quebec City, Hong Kong. The list goes on and on, and the list actually includes Sri Lanka. It was back in 1795 that the British Empire took control of Sri Lanka's Trincomalee port. And the U.S. and Britain coming to control all of these different maritime choke points and sea gates was prophesied in the Bible. Genesis 22 said that some of the descendants of Abraham would come to control the gates of their enemies. And then other Bible passages show that these descendants would specifically be Ephraim and Manasseh, which you know became the modern nations of Britain and America. So that prophecy was fulfilled by America and Britain taking possession of Sri Lanka and dozens of other maritime locations. But then there's another prophecy saying that if the U.S. and the U.K. refused to turn to God, then they would lose control over these crucial locations and their enemies would take over them instead. That's in Deuteronomy 28. And much of that has also been fulfilled since the end of World War II. The U.S. and Britain have lost almost all of these locations, including Sri Lanka, back in 1957. That's when London relinquished control of, uh, of that port to a newly independent Sri Lanka. And in the years since then, especially just in the last decade or so, Sri Lanka has moved more and more into the Chinese camp. So, yeah, this is, this is another gate that has not only been taken away from the U.S. slash U.K., but is now actually in the hands of one of their main rivals, China. Well, uh, we will link to Jeremiah's new article on thetrumpet.com. Why is China's top spy ship docking in Sri Lanka? You can read that if you want more information about this, uh, this latest move by China. We'll also link to an article, an older article, Besieged in Thy Gates, 
that talks about this uh, this prophetic trend, including uh, China's efforts to make its way into Sri Lanka. Thank you very much for that, Jeremiah. The Balkan nation of Bosnia has an election scheduled for next month. Germany is moving to secure this election, a move that is raising eyebrows among those with an understanding of history. For this story, we'll go to Josue Michels. Yes, that's why there were actually two news stories that came out of Bosnia this week. And at first, they seemed a little bit unrelated, but a little closer look really showed that they highlight something that our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Louis, has drawn attention to a lot, especially in his book, booklet, Germany's Conquest of the Balkans. So the first story that came out first this week was that Germany is sending 25 soldiers into Bosnia by mid-September. Now, I read a Spiegel article, and they portrayed it quite nicely. Germany hasn't been there for 10 years, so it's interesting that they're coming back. And the Spiegel article said one of their main responsibilities will actually be to drink a cup of coffee with the locals there to just build connections. So that sounds pretty good, <laughs> but Germany is part of a bigger mission there, and the European Union is actually sending, or already have sent, 1,100 soldiers in the region now, most analysts say that that's because of the increased Russian aggression, the war in Ukraine, and the influence they have in the Balkans. Now, that might be partly true, but there's also quite a few concerns in Bosnia and in the Balkans about Germany's troop deployment. For example, alluding to World War II, one of Bosnian Serb separatist leaders said, that German troops are not welcome. So you might wonder why is that? If they just drink a cup of coffee there, why are they not welcome? What is it that concerns them? Now Spiegel also gives us a hint about that. And it said that the German troops actually are there to ensure that the presidential and parliamentary elections scheduled for October 2nd are free and fair. Now that's quite interesting because locals in the region actually accuse Germany of wanting to sway that election. So if you put those puzzles together, you get a little bit of a different view why Germany might be sending troops there. You can say it might be just speculation, but just a few days after the German troops were sent there, nine already there, and they should be increased to 25 soldiers, another story broke. And that was actually a high diplomat gave an answer to a journalist and he shouted down those journalists. Now, that's a scandal anywhere you are if a diplomat is shouting at journalists. But this journalist asked this simple question to that diplomat and that diplomat happens to be German. So we have a German diplomat shouting at regional journalists. So that was a scandal. But what the context was of that question is even more scandalous. The journalist simply asked, since the different groups in the region don't find an agreement on how to conduct the next election, are you going to make a decision above our heads? Now, that has been the accusation against him that he is just going to push his idea through despite the lack of consent between the different groups. So he was angered by that, and he said, that's rubbish. 
and he shouted at them and said, told them many people have died in the region already and that the political blocs have still disagreements and that he doesn't want to tolerate that anymore. Now he didn't talk about Germany's history in the region. In two world wars Germany has actually caused lots of deaths there. They have conquered that region, they have butchered many Serbs. And then in the 1990s, Yugoslavia broke up into the different Balkan countries as we know now. And Mr. Gerald Louis really explains what was going on there, because it was Germany that ac first accepted the different countries' independence, which then led to something like a civil war there, which then led to NATO bombing and thousands of people dying. So those are the deaths, really, that he's talking about. But he is saying that it's the local politicians that are the problem. So that's quite a statement for someone that's a foreigner in the region, meant to be someone that brings peace there. Yeah, talk about uh, the... You, you mentioned Gerald Fleury's booklet, uh, Germany's Conquest of the Balkans, and the, the history of uh, German efforts to basically divide and conquer Yugoslavia. Maybe you can just uh, just describe uh, that history in a little more detail, why Germany is so intent on, uh, on taking over there. Yeah, this is really a highly emotional subject because the Serbs in former Yugoslavia, they have been one of the greatest enemies. They have been giving the greatest resistance to Germany's plan. They just did not want to give up in the world wars. And Hitler was infuriated against that and he sent more troops which actually might have caused him to later lose the world war because he was so caught up in defeating the Serbian resistance. Now that's very interesting because right now we have an election that might go in favor of the Serbs and the Germans don't want that. But more about that history, so there's a lot of bloodshed that Germany has caused in order to gain that region. So just from an emotional standpoint, they want the victory there. They don't want Serbia anymore to give them any resistance. Furthermore, they don't want that region to fall into the hands of Russia because it would give them more access to the sea there and to have some more ports. And that's actually what Germany wants. If you look at the old Roman Empire, they controlled the Mediterranean and Germany wants to control access to that sea too and they want to control the region for partly that reason. So there are lots of factors and Mr. Fleur really explains that a lot in Germany's conquest of the Balkans, why Germany really focuses on that region and he says they can't resurrect the old empire the way they want to without having those Balkan states. So that's really the context if you look about why Germany sends troops there, why they have a high representative. And that high representative, that man that shouted at those journalists is Christian Schmidt. And he actually has the far-reaching powers there. And at least at in theory, he can dismiss elected politicians, dismiss laws, and issue decrees. So that's a lot of power for a foreigner to have in that region. Mm -hmm. And he is German, so that says a lot about that. 
Yeah, when you uh, when you look at the way that he responded to that journalist, it's a kind of a uh, thou dost protest too much kind of a situation. That Germany is actually exerting quite a bit of uh, of its power over that nation, and considering the history, it is. It is quite concerning. Well, we'll keep our eyes on that election next month and see how that plays out. In the meantime, you can read Josue's article. He has one that is coming up on the website. Germany sends troop into Bosnia and tries to sway an election. And you can read Gerald Flory's booklet, Germany's Conquest of the Balkans. Thank you, Josue. News emerged this week that revises some important history of the Trump administration's relationship with former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. For this, we'll turn to Josh Taylor. So this week, a letter emerged from the Jerusalem Post that they obtained uh, showing that President Trump actually gave former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu permission to annex up to 30% of the West Bank as part of his, quote, deal of the century. Now, the letter was dated to January 26th, 2020, which was two days before President Trump officially announced that deal of the century. Uh, just to rem uh, go back that far, the deal of the century was that if Israel agreed to recognize or potentially recognize a Palestinian state, then they could have up to 30% or annex 30% of the West Bank. Now, where this letter is significant is that uh, it directly contradicts the current narrative that we've heard from the media and also uh, uh, former senior advisor and son-in-law to Donald Trump, Jared Kushner, his book, Breaking History, a White House memoir. In his memoir, he states that both he and Trump were blindsided by Netanyahu's uh, announcement that came on the 29th of January that he was going to proceed with annexing the West Bank in the coming days. So uh, the media... The media's reaction to this letter is in itself pretty significant in that there wasn't much of a much of a reaction. And what reaction they had was mostly just to use it as ammunition to further divide, try to further divide Netanyahu, Israel and Trump from each other. It's just which has been the story that since Barack Obama, just using that to attack the U.S.'s relationship with Israel, uh, because back in 2020, the radical left and the media absolutely hated this deal. Uh, in fact, the deal ultimately failed in no small part due to misinformation and vitriol coming from the media about this deal. Uh, specifically, they said that Israel was being given permission to blanket annex the West Bank without any condition, when a key stipulation for this deal was that Israel had to, and Netanyahu, had to agree to a Palestinian state, which is no small thing, considering that the Palestinians, whether in Gaza or the West Bank, have been constantly attacking Israel over the decades. So that is in itself no small thing to, to the Israelis. And it was no small thing to Benjamin Netanyahu either, who put his base's platform and bases his image on being a defender of Israel. So the idea that right from the get-go he was willing to do this is pretty big. Now, the, th the other reason this story is really significant, and of course the major media misses this, only we at the Trumpet have the perspective, the biblical perspective to talk about this, is just how willing Netanyahu and Trump were to accept and to create a Palestinian state. Mr. Flurry has, pro has been prophesying that Trump is going to be coming back into the presidency. He's going to reclaim his lost presidency within the next few years. 
And we have coming up here very soon the Israeli elections that could see Netanyahu return to power. He's the front runner right now and is still the, one of the most popular po uh, politicians in Israel. Uh, and back in 2020, one of his key campaign promises was to exert is more Israeli sovereignty over the West Bank. So this deal of the century would have allowed him to do just exactly that. And with this deal, when it finally kind of fell apart and died, it quietly slipped into the dustbin of history. It was just allowed to let go, mostly because at that point the Abraham Accords took over. But for the most part, both Netanyahu and, and Trump just didn't touch it. They didn't talk about um, rescinding it. They didn't talk about its future. They just let it go. And as we know, neither of these men just let anything go. They're fighters. So when Donald Trump comes back into office, and if Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu gets back into office, there's a real chance we could see this uh, the resurrection of this deal. It was a pretty important thing between them for quite a while, up in, for about six, seven, eight months, up until the Abraham Accords was released. And the reason it fell apart, again, was mostly due to the media's misinformation of it and then also just backlash from the international media our editor-in-chief gerald flurry has talked so much over the years about the dangers in in a peace deal and the fact that you had basically this uh this american president who is unprecedentedly supportive of israel backing a plan like this it shows just how how vulnerable israel really is to uh to, to putting a deal in place like this Absolutely. The, the Israelis are very much getting tired of the constant fighting and the battling. They just want peace almost at any cost at this point. And Mr. Fleury has uh, stated in an article, will the Trump peace plan bring peace to Israel? He talked about how any such peace arrangement wouldn't bring peace. Quote, it would actually create a dangerous wound for the Jews. And he used that word deliberately. It's from Hosea 5 verse 13. And he explains in that article that that wound is the peace deal. And that wound is going to lead to a lot of other prophecies, including ones in Zechariah 14, that lead up to the return of Jesus Christ. All right. Thank you very much for that. We'll link to Gerald Fleury's article, Will the Trump Peace Plan Bring Peace to Israel, in the show notes. You're listening to Trumpet Hour coming up. China joining massive war games sponsored by Russia. Record-breaking drought hammering American food production. America and Europe still hoping to cement a nuclear deal with Iran. And the Palestinian president accusing Israel of committing 50 holocausts. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. It was announced this week that Russia will host massive war games that include several of its Asian neighbors, including China. For this story, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, China announced on Wednesday that a number of its soldiers will be traveling to eastern Russia at the end of this month to take part in a set of large-scale joint military exercises that Russia will be leading there. These are the Vostok drills that Russia holds every four years. And uh, as you said, China is not the only partner nation that will be um, you know, participating in these. Most of the foreign troops taking part will be from China, but soldiers also from India, 
Belarus, Mongolia, and Tajikistan will be there as well, just practicing war under Russia's lead. So we might have thought that, uh, you know, Russia's partners would want to begin to sort of distance themselves from Moscow over the brutal war of aggression that Russia is now waging on Ukraine. But here is a whole list of nations doing just the opposite, actually showing their solidarity, not just with Russia, but with Russia's military specifically, by taking part in these war games shoulder to shoulder with Russian soldiers. And uh, there was a statement about the purpose of these these war games from China's defense ministry. It said, the aim is to deepen practical and friendly cooperation with the armies of participating countries and to enhance the level of strategic collaboration among the participating parties. So, you know, these are several of the world's most populous and powerful nations, also some smaller, weaker nations in there as well. But they'll all be training to make war together training to integrate their power, and it's all happening under the leadership of Vladimir Putin's Russia. That is interesting. Uh, we have followed this story uh, for the last, uh, what is it now, eight months that uh, Russia has been waging war in Ukraine, where uh, basically the entire Western world is is uh, arrayed against uh, Putin is certainly condemning what he's done in Ukraine. On the east, uh, you have a very different response to what Russia is doing, and there have been uh, many signs of uh, these these nations continuing to align themselves with Russia. They support Russia. They have no problem with what Russia is doing. We've seen it economically. We've seen it politically. Here we see this even militarily. But as you said, uh, the fact that Vladimir Putin is kind of at the center of these war games that we're uh, about to see uh, is something that we would expect given what we understand about prophecy. That's right. Yeah, I think in many ways this this would be hard to understand uh, if you didn't really have comprehension of the of what the Bible says about this. Uh, but we do have an article on our website that goes through a lot of the specific Bible prophecies about Asia and uh specifically about Russia-China collaboration. It's called, Why the Trumpet Watches Russia Allying with China. One quote from that says, For over half a century, the Trumpet and our predecessor magazine, The Plain Truth, have been expecting Russia and China to partner up. We've expected it because Bible prophecy says that in the time of the end, the Russia-China axis will lead an Asian military bloc that fields an army larger than any the world has ever seen. And then a little further down, this article talks about how this Asian axis will end up playing a major role in the final world war. And it says the fact that the Russia-China axis has now taken shape, which we see, you know, with these kinds of war games that they're holding together, that means the fulfillment of these Bible prophecies is astonishingly near. And these prophecies are specific. Ezekiel 38 talks about Russia being the lead nation. But then it also mentions ancient names there for China and India, showing that they will be under Russia's leadership in this axis. And this, uh, this article dives into numerous scriptural passages just to prove that the Bible did prophesy of the Russia-China axis thousands of years before it happened. So I think when we see these two nations increasing their military cooperation and also bringing in India and several other Asian states, uh, we should really see that as clearing the way for that axis and for the final world war. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Jeremiah. Why the Trumpet Watches Russia Align with China, our trend article will be linked to in the show notes. 
you can check that out for more information on that. Pressures on global food supplies continue to worsen. In America, a major factor exacerbating the problem is something close to a nationwide drought. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, the drought currently afflicting the western United States is really something for the history books. I mean, you you can hear about drought in California, and it seems like California is kind of always in a, a pretty dry condition. But the... Um, <laughs> The, the best scientists can determine from the, the tree rings and other data is that this is the worst drought in 1,200 years. And so uh, Charlemagne was being crowned the last time <laughs> it was this dry uh, in the western United States. And so, and it's having a really a profound impact on the nation's food supply there's actually 17 the 17 western states currently suffering the most uh produce about half of america's food uh and this um this mega drought has caused the uh farmers to plow under about 37 percent of their crops it was just too dry they weren't growing well they weren't gonna they weren't gonna produce much fruit anyway so rather than go through the rigmarole of just uh, spending all the high diesel prices and other things to harvest plants that weren't going to ha- produce much or weren't fully formed, uh, they just plowed it under. They also said that the percentage, the percentage that's going to decrease the crop yield is about what you'd expect. They also expect the uh, the crop yield from those western states to go down by about 37, 38 uh, percent. Uh, tomatoes in particular, I guess I. I saw one article saying that spaghetti may be much more expensive next year is that like most of the nation's tomatoes come from California mm-hmm. and they're they're wondering if they're going to be able to harvest uh, much of those at all this year. Uh, and it's not just the plants, it's the uh it's the cattle as well. Uh they um Texas is one of the states the most famous for its cattle uh and they said that they've actually reduced their uh their herd by about half they um they realized it was getting dry enough that they weren't going to be able to keep their current herd sides going so they just sold them off uh butchered them now and so i guess you've got the meat now but they're that's just that much less cattle to be producing calves and stuff in the future Uh, i saw one um local newspaper from an oklahoma rancher saying that he thinks that uh fifty dollar a pound beef uh, might be something that happens sooner than you'd uh, <laughs> sooner than you than you'd think. Those beef prices are are just going up as the as the cattle lose their uh, lose their pasture. It just is stunning to to read these these uh, stories in the midst of really uh, unprecedented or at least uh, you know very significant inflation across the board in so many so many sectors of uh, of the american economy grocery prices have just uh really gone up dramatically over the past year and to think that uh all of these individual stories that you've kind of collected to show just how how bad this could get uh kind of feels like we're just at the start of uh, what could be even far worse in the time ahead right yeah because like you said the inflation rate is at a four decade high uh, and there's really three reasons for that now the reason you probably think of first off is just the fact that like the government spending's actually making dollar bills worth less than they used to be Mm -hmm. Uh, but in addition to that you also have um, 
uh, gas prices being higher due to the war in Ukraine and other factors, and food prices being higher due to this drought and other factors. And so the high food and the high gas prices are major contributors to inflation that are um, uh, separate from the fact that just money printing is making dollars worth less. So even if the the Federal Reserve can raise interest rates and uh, and try to get um, some of that traditional inflation down, that doesn't mean the food prices are going to come down. You could actually, we are actually already in that spot right now where uh, the inflation, the, the, what they call the core inflation rate that doesn't count food or energy is trending down slightly, but the food and the, the gas prices are still going up. And so you could even see America kind of get a handle on the inflation crisis, but the groceries still go up mm. due to drought and other separate factors like I said it make it stands to reason that if half the food comes from the western United States and the western United States has now plowed under 37 percent of its crop that half of 37 is uh, about 16 17 percent you can see food prices go up 16 17 uh, percent over over the next year just due to basic laws of supply uh, and demand and, and this is something that the the Bible indicates is going to get worse because we've uh, we've talked some about like prophecies about economic collapse, but uh, in specific, there's quite a few prophecies about um, uh, weather disasters and uh, drought. Uh, we've we've pointed before to like verses like Amos four and verse seven that talks about it will rain in one city and not rain on another city as part of God's curses. And we definitely see that today in that there's been some major flooding in Kentucky, even while the 17 Western states are experiencing their worst drought since the Mayans. But the uh, you can look at other verses uh, like Joel 1, uh, which is pretty, pretty horrifying, uh, some poetry there about just how bad the drought will be and about the crops withering and the, um, the, the cattle just being like, confused because they go where there's normally grass and there's no grass and it doesn't make sense. Uh, you definitely see there's probably a lot of cattle in Texas this past couple months who've had that had that confusing moment. But uh, that, that prophecy in Joel does, does really indicate that um, above and beyond just the natural disasters like hurricanes and blizzards and earthquakes and stuff like that, it does seem to be the drought that's the one that really that really cripples the nation's food supply and, and that is what we're seeing right now is that like despite what other uh, various natural disasters are happening on the east coast uh you have a very consistent natural disaster west of the mississippi where uh it's just too dry for the crops to grow or the cattle to graze well, uh, we have an article talking about the prophecies of famine that uh, that really inform what uh, what we're describing here, what we're seeing unfold. Four reasons famine is coming to America is the name of the article that we will link to in the show notes. We thank you for that, Andrew. Iran seems to be doing just about everything it can to show itself completely untrustworthy in negotiations over its nuclear program. Nevertheless. America and Europe are still hoping to cement a deal with Iran. For this story, we'll go back to Josh Taylor. So we've been talking about this repeatedly week after week, almost month after month, for nearly, actually over a year now, uh, with these ongoing negotiations. And we're finally potentially seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, 
if the news this week is to be believed. And that was Iran was presented with the West's, quote, final offer for the nuclear deal by the EU. And that was presented over last weekend. And then Iran sent their written response to both the EU and U.S. on Monday. But that public or that statement hasn't been made public yet. So we don't really know what's going on. But suffice it to say, it probably isn't an enthusiastic acceptance of that final offer. And to make matters worse, the United States isn't really helping either in, uh, with the optics of this, because while they've said that they're not going to accept any major changes any further to the draft that the EU presented, they're also seeming pretty eager to, and with, with their language, saying that we'd be willing to go back to the negotiation tables for like a few more uh, details, which is just what we've heard time and time again. So in, in a way, it's big news, but at the same time, not really. And it's just flying in the face of what's been happening as you talked, you mentioned, you know, Iran's kind of doing everything in its power to seem like it doesn't care anymore about this deal. We had this week, uh, along with this final deal, this final offer announced, we also found out that, that the Iranian regime was behind uh, the attack on an author by the name of Salman Rushdie. Uh, who wrote uh, the book The Satanic Verses, uh, which the Ayatollah Khomeini uh, called blasphemous and also uh, started a fatwa, which is um, a religious judgment against him for all faithful Muslims worldwide to hunt down and kill not only him, but anyone in association with the writing of this book. Now, that was 30 years ago, and now to, uh, this week he was attacked, and the man that attacked him uh, has been shown to have connections to Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps. And so that in and of itself is bad. But we also found out this week that the U.S. has also indicted another IRGC member for the attempted or the, the planning to assassinate former uh, U.S. official John Bolton. So uh, it's just we're, back in 2015 with the original nuclear deal, we had the Obama administration and Iran doing everything possible to pretend that Iran was moderate, that they were moving towards secularism, that things that they were, you know, people you could work with. But at this point, Iran is just kind of throwing that completely out the window. So we even with this final offer, I wouldn't honestly expect much. But it's kind of interesting that we're hitting the point now where they're starting to say we're we're hitting that red line. Considering what we've been Discussing, I think it was even last week that we were talking about just how far along Iran has gotten with its nuclear program. And uh, they're essentially, uh, they, they could flip a switch just about at any time and, and uh, produce nuclear weapons. So they're late enough, advanced enough in their nuclear development that it seems like this deal is kind of moot anyway. Absolutely. Regardless of what deal they strike up, if they even strike up a deal at this point, Iran is already at the breakout point. They could, like you said, they could flip a switch. The, there are multiple studies that show they have enough uranium right now where they could build a bomb in two weeks and have three bombs in about a month and a half. So at this point, any kind of deal is worthless. And even a lot of politicians, even Democrats are seeing that. Uh, many Democrats, there's a few Democrats that have come out and explicitly said that if a deal is even struck, they will vote against it in Congress, uh, d despite the fact that this, you know, Joe Biden, Obama, all of the establishment is behind a new deal. So one interesting point, though, to uh, look at that makes this uh, news story very significant is Europe's involvement in it. 
Uh, this isn't the U.S.'s version of the final draft. This isn't Iran's version of the final draft. What makes this final offer interesting that it's Europe's final draft. And uh, this ties into uh, Bible prophecy, specifically to Daniel 11, verse 40, which foretells of a decisive clash between two entities, the king of the south and the king of the north. Now, Mr. Gerald Flurry has, for a long time, since the not late 90s, has been identifying the king of the south as a radical Islam led by Iran and the king of the north as a German-led Europe. So seeing if, I, if Iran does go and reject this proposed deal, it could really just even further sour the already poor relations that Iran has with the EU and be a small step towards that, fun, well, not even a small step, a huge step towards that Daniel 11 verse 40 clash that we have been talking about for decades at this point, that Mr. Flurry has been talking about for decades. Because ultimately we know whether this deal goes through or not, it won't be the US or Israel that finally deals with Iran, it will be Europe. All right, the King of the South, we'll link to it in the show notes. Thanks for that, Joshua. You have a similar situation playing out with the Palestinians whose leaders consistently show they have no interest in making a deal with Israel. This week, the Palestinian president made this clear. And interestingly, the German chancellor was standing right there, didn't seem to have a problem with it. For this story, we'll go back to Josue Michels. Yes, that's right. We talked about an emotional outburst in the first half and an aggressive response to a journalist. Well, there was another such outburst in Germany this week, actually. At a joint press conference, in Berlin, the Palestinian Authority President Maud Abbas shouted at a journalist in Germany. He was asked a simple question to po apologize basically for a terrorist attack in Munich in 1972. But instead of apologizing, he went on a rant and a attack speech on Israel. He said Israel has committed 50 massacres in Palestinian localities since 1947 until today. And then he called the massacres holocausts. Now, he said that in Germany. In Germany, where the real holocaust was committed against the Jews, where Adolf Hitler ordered the killing of millions of Jews, six millions in total. And now, very interesting, the German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, stood right next to him. He looked a little bit displeased that he didn't apologize for the terrorist attack. He seemed like he wanted to answer, but then he didn't. The press conference was called to an end and he shook Abbas's hand. So that was quite a symbolic show that Germany and the Palestinian authorities stand together accusing Israel of massacres in the terms of holocausts. Now, Scholz later apologized for his credit for his failure to speak up here, but the media tore his response apart. Now, that's very interesting considering that this is not the only time that Germany is criticized in supporting such statements. In fact, if you really look at it, the criticism against Scholz is somewhat hypocritical because the German government for years has been funding terrorism in the Middle East. Moreover, just the fact that Mahmoud Abbas is able to negotiate over Israel's future in Germany tells you a lot about how they see the situation. For example, in 2018, Abbas said that the Holocaust, the real Holocaust, was not triggered by anti-Semitism, 
but by the social behavior of the Jews. And he talked about them being in the banking industry and everything like that. Now, that's exactly what German propaganda of World War II would have you believe. Interestingly, just a few days after, they discussed if Germany should continue funding humanitarian aid in the region for the Palestinians. And they said, yes, the, 300, the 340 million euros in humanitarian aid need to continue to flow there. That's despite the fact that we know already that this funding goes directly to support terrorism. This was a big issue in 2021 when we saw large-scale rockets flow into Israel. And at the time, a local paper really summed it up. They said Germany has played its part in exploding hatred of Israel and Jews in the Palestinian territories. For years, Berlin has ignored warnings that German taxpayers' money also finances Arabic textbooks that demonize Israel and declare Jews to be enemies of Islam. Likewise, the German government looks on idly as Palestinian President Abbas misuses international funds to generously compensate families of terrorists. So essentially, if there's a terrorist and he killed Jews, he gets compensated, he gets a high reward, the family gets rewarded, and the bigger the crime, the bigger the reward. And the quote in the end says, the seeds of hatred are now sprouting. So basically that paper says, and quite a few have made that point, that what Germany is doing through the humanitarian aid is funding terrorism. And if you look at it, in some ways Germany gives more funds than the entire European Union to some organizations there. So that's a big deal. So for the German press to criticize Scholz for not responding, while at the same time they demonize Israel in their own papers, and they really look like when the German government funds terrorism, it is really hypocritical. Now we might see a backlash at that, and Germany might be even more openly pro-Israel in the future, but all that shows that Germany has been sowing the seeds of hatred in the Middle East, and they might do that for a very specific reason. Yeah, there, there's uh, quite a lot of evidence, and we've been following it over many years, of the rise in anti-Semitism within Germany. And what makes that uh, particularly concerning is the Bible prophecy is showing that Israel will actually trust Germany to mediate peacekeeping efforts uh, when things turn really sour in, in the Middle East. That's described in detail in uh, Gerald Flurry's booklet, Jerusalem in Prophecy. We'll link to that in the show notes uh, for today's program if you want more information about that. It is a uh, definitely uh, an important uh, prophecy to keep in mind as you see these, these signals from Germany of its true feelings toward Israel, uh, when that, that is revealed, it's going to, uh, to really explode in Israel's faces in the future. We thank you very much for that, Josue. I'm Joel Hilliker. That's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Josue Michels, and Josh Taylor. Thanks to Jeremiah and Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Alexander Graham Bell. Concentrate all your thoughts upon the work at hand. The sun's rays do not burn until brought into a focus. 
Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.